Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture passage today is from Matthew 20, 17 through 28. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers but Jesus called them to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thanks be to God. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Calvary. Hope you're doing all right on this spring morning. And uh, we're continuing on in our sermon series, All Things New. If you're just joining us, uh, you'll... Maybe you want to know that we've been working our way through a sermon series since the beginning of 2020, looking at the overarching story line of the Bible. And uh, we are all the way in now to the life of Christ and his ministry. And uh, so we're continuing that this morning. Uh, there are times, I think, uh, in our own personal lives and times, of course, I think in the world where the message that God is going to make all things new are particularly uh, more poignant uh, and felt. And I, I think that maybe this is one of those times in our nation. I'm thinking of the, the shootings in Atlanta this past week, uh, the spa shootings that uh, left eight people dead, done uh, by a, a professing Christian even. It's a time where we uh, as a church and as evangelicals should have a particular sense of mourning uh, related to that. Difficult to know whether the spa shootings are hate crimes specifically directed against the Asian community, whether it's directed against women. But whatever the case might be, it's clear uh, that the world is broken and that there are many places of pain in the world, and this is an example of it here in Atlanta. So as I begin uh, our time together in this sermon and looking at God's Word, I want to just say a word of prayer 
uh, for us as a church, for our nation, and, and uh, for those that have been affected by the shooting. So if you join me with prayer in prayer. God, we thank you that you are gracious and kind in the midst of all of our failures. And we thank you that you do indeed make all things new in the midst of all of our brokenness. And we pray now a prayer of blessing in particular uh, to the families that have been affected uh, by this tragedy down in Atlanta and beyond. Pray that your, your peace your uh, grace, your mercy uh, would be present. And Lord, I pray for those uh, that are believers that are down in the Atlanta area, for the church down there to be able to minister the grace and uh, the gospel of Christ to those uh, that have been affected. And so are we uh, acknowledge um, that the, uh, the seeds of, of death and sickness and sin are present in all of us. And even here, uh, we see uh, a professing member of your church uh, entering into the, such a atrocity, Lord. We, uh, we pray uh, for forgiveness for all of us in all the ways that we fall short and don't love as we should when we misuse power in ways that are harmful to others. And God, help us uh, to live into uh, the hope of the gospel and to demonstrate uh, the love of Christ uh, in our own communities and in our own lives and the places uh, that we have uh, a capacity to impact. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. Well, last Sunday, uh, Pastor Manfred uh, preached for us and helped us to look, help us look at Jesus through the eyes of of faith in particular as one who has the capacity and the power to do the impossible and to bring about healing in the life of Jairus' daughter. We saw that. And uh, this morning, we're right on the cusp of Holy Week. Next week is Palm Sunday, and then we enter into all the events of Holy Week. And that's where we are in our sermon series as well. And so Jesus, uh, here in this passage, is on his way to Jerusalem where the events of Holy Week are about to take place. And we've seen along the way over the past number of months, Jesus as a teacher. We've seen him as a healer, a miracle worker. Two weeks ago, when I preached, I emphasized Jesus's power, which was a sign or a foreshadowing of humanity's lost sovereignty and the restoration of humanity's dominion back uh, over creation. And I want to return again to this theme of power, not focusing on how Jesus has power, but how Jesus uses power. Power, we could define it succinctly like this, power is the capacity to bring about one's will in any particular situation. And all of us have at least a little bit of power. We have varying degrees of power, uh, but all of us have at least a little bit of power. If we can move our arms and our legs and, and speak, we have, a power to, we have a power to do things. So I want to reflect on today the nature of power as Jesus would help us. What is power? What is it for? Is it, is it good? Is it bad? How should it be used if it should be used at all? How does power factor into the Bible's vision of human flourishing? And we live in an age, I think, that is fundamentally or basically suspicious of power, most especially the power of others. My own power, no problem. Your power over me, that's a problem, right? So we're suspicious of the power of others in particular. And we 
have seen so often power misused. I mean, this is what we see in the headlines all the time. It's what we've just seen in Atlanta as well, the misuse of power. And so we tend to view power primarily through a negative light. It's, it's, an, it's an occasion for an oppressive force. It's a source of tyranny. And so in our culture, we often seek to equalize power disparities or to check or to clip the wings of someone who is in a position of power. So men and women, white and black, rich and poor, young and old, citizen and government, anywhere where there is a power disparity, an inequality of power, we try to equalize the relationship of power or we try to limit the power in some way of the one who's in the strong position. And equalizing or checking power is often necessary in our fallen world. But, but that approach to power views power as fundamentally negative and threatening. And while it is definitely true that we can see pernicious uses of power all around us, Jesus offers us a life-giving, positive vision of power that shows how a proper use of power is so crucial for human flourishing. Without power, you can't have human flourishing. So this morning, we're going to take a look at Jesus' vision of power, the use of power. And we're going to see that his vision of power lies at the very heart of God's redemptive plan to make all things new, to redeem the world. So our text today, which has been read for us, is Matthew 20, 17 through 28, and Jesus compares the world's view of power and the world's use of power to Jesus's vision and use of power. And I want to focus on that, kind of that compare and contrast, and then then draw from Jesus's comments about his own use of power or the Christian way of power, three particular characteristics or distinctions of Jesus's use of power. All right. So we're going to look uh, here in Matthew 20, 17 through 28, and then ultimately draw out three characteristics or distinctions of Jesus's use of power. All right, so Matthew 20, 17, the passage opens up for us. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. As I've mentioned, these are, this is right before the events of Holy Week. He is going to be arrested upon his entry into Jerusalem shortly. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he tells his disciples plainly what is going to happen. He tells them that he's going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to to condemn him to death, and he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. So he's telling them that this is, in fact, what is going to happen. Now, this is not the first time that he has told them about the sufferings that are awaiting for him in Jerusalem, but the disciples have not been getting it. And maybe he speaks too much in parables. And so they just always, whenever they hear this kind of stuff, they're just like, well, what does that really mean? You know, they're just kind of interpreting it in a parabolic way. In Luke chapter nine, Luke tells us that when Jesus shares this information, that the truth is concealed from them. And so uh, exactly how that happens is God the Father concealing this truth from them. They don't hear it. But whatever the case, they're not getting that what Jesus is saying is actually going to happen in the way that Jesus is saying it. Their vision of Messiah involves crowns, not crosses. So they just don't have categories for the idea that Jesus is going to be crucified and killed. 
So as soon as Jesus has finished telling his disciples that he's going to be crucified and killed, the mother of James and John, who are two of Jesus' three closest disciples, comes up to Jesus, kneels before him, and she asks if her two sons can sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. So I'm not sure if she, you know, caught all that was going on in the situation. She seems a little tone deaf to the context of what Jesus has just said, but here she's asking for her sons to enter into these positions of power. It's a bold request. And she isn't just asking for her two sons to be honored. She's asking for the right hand and the left hand of the kingdom, which are the two power positions in relation to the king. It's as close as one can get to having the power of the king without actually being the king. So she's asking for her sons to have power in the coming kingdom. And Jesus says to her then, you don't know what you're asking. And he turns to James and and to John and he says, are you able to drink the cup that I am going to drink? Now, they confidently assert that they're able to do so. And I'm not sure what they thought was in that cup, right? Maybe they thought it was perhaps a nice Merlot, you know, or perhaps a, a Cabernet with a nice little cheese wedge, you know, or perhaps a cup of glory and honor and kingdom leadership. Whatever they thought was in that cup, I don't think they really quite grasped it. James and John confidently assert that they can drink it, and Jesus soberly affirms that they will, in fact, drink from his cup. And while it will be a cup of glory, because that is what waits for Jesus in the end, it will first be a cup of suffering and humiliation and death. It is ultimately the cup of Gethsemane and the cross. And drink it, in fact, James and John did. James will be executed in Acts chapter 12, martyred for his faith and his loyalty to Jesus. And John will be a political exile cast out into an island where he will die. All of them, in fact, all of the disciples will die as martyrs for their faith. So now in verse 24, when the other disciples hear that James and John, through their mom, have asked for the two power positions in the coming kingdom, they become indignant. Who are James and John to think that they deserve the front of the line? Who are they to think that they merit positions above the other disciples in the coming kingdom? And I don't think that they're so much indignant at the fact of the request as that they didn't think to ask it first. I think they all think that they belong in these spots. So Jesus calls them together for a teaching moment. And he tells them then in verse 25 that the Gentiles, which is kind of shorthand way of saying the world, right? The the world at large, the Gentiles, they lord it over each other and they exercise authority over each other. Now, both of these expressions, lording it over and exercising authority over, these are used elsewhere in the Bible and they convey the sort of uh, idea of a heavy-handed tyranny or a heavy-handed mastery, right? In the Gentile world, it was all about being on the top. That's where you wanted to be. Power was important because it got you to the top. It was about climbing over people to get above the churn and the scrum. The more power, the higher you were in the food chain and the less chance you had of being oppressed. And this could be especially seen in the larger uh, Gentile world, the larger Gentile world, particularly in the Roman world, was uh, organized according to the patron-client relationship. 
in, in the patron-client client relationship, the patrons were the, were the wealthy. Uh, they were the, uh, the nobility, the aristocracy, as it were. And the clients were the poor people that depended upon them or those who were less uh, well-off. And these were semi-formal relationships. And uh, they existed and kind of drove all of society. So a rich patron would step out of his house in the morning and all of his clients would have gathered outside of his door and would be asking for favors. They'd be looking for their patron to do help for them. Maybe it was a social connection that they needed. Maybe it was a loan. Maybe it was help in a legal or a business problem that they were having. So the patron would then choose to be generous to his lesser clients, but always with strings attached. Because there were no free lunches in the Greco-Roman world. It was always quid pro quo. I'll do this for you, but then you're going to owe me. This was how the patron-client relationship worked. So gifts and favors that the patron gave to the client were written down. Like he kept track of who he gave gifts and favors to, and he would call in those favors then when he needed them. There was always an expectation of payback. And so the patron, because the patron was in the position of power, could decide whether or not to, to initiate the exchange, could even force the exchange of favors, which left the client perpetually in a position of potential exploitation. Now, not every patron-client relationship was exploitative, but many of those relationships were. And so everyone wanted to be the patron, not the client. The higher you were up the patron ladder, the better. The, the, the less patrons you had and the more clients you had underneath you, the safer you were. So James and John, in asking for the right and the left hand in the coming kingdom of Jesus, were asking to climb to the very top of the patron-client relationship that they saw would be worked out in Jesus' kingdom. Now, we don't have technically or formally a patron-client relationship today, but it's not all that different today in our culture with how we think about power. We also, in our culture, want to clamor up to the top of the ladder at the expense of others. And our workplaces and our social circles have kind of their own informal versions of a patron-client relationship. We do things for people that we think can benefit us in some way. Like every human being since Genesis 3, when humanity was expelled from the garden, we fundamentally use power in service of self to advance our own positions and our own cause. And so that's what Jesus means when he says the world uses power in a way that lords it over each other. But then in verse 26, he says, it shall not be so among you. And then he offers a competing or a contrasting vision of power. Now, we might be inclined without you know, reading the next couple of verses. We might be inclined to think that Jesus, in his dismantling of the world's view of power, is going to dismantle the entire patron-client relationship system that he will seek in his vision of power to eliminate the abuses of power by calling for the elimination of power disparities and a redistribution of power so that everyone is equal, so that there are no patrons and clients. Everyone is just all the same. Because if everyone is equal, then no one can abuse anyone else with their power. But Jesus doesn't do that. Not here, nor really anywhere 
else in his teachings does he deal with the abuses of power by trying to erase the disparity of power. That's not how he deals with the abuses of power. Equalizing power disparities or clipping the wings of those in the stronger position is not the way that Jesus and the New Testament deals with the abuses of power. Because the desire to equalize power disparities or to clip the wings of those in positions of power, if that's fundamentally the way that we're going to solve the problem of the misuses of power, those strategies fundamentally make peace with the sin that drives the misuses of power. There's an assumption that power will be misused. And Jesus doesn't want to grant that assumption. He doesn't want to grant that power will always and can only always be misused. Jesus calls us to the root of where power goes wrong. He wants to fix power at its very foundational source, not by constraining it, but by calling it to a different use. For Jesus, the primary issue is not the disparity of power, but the misuse of power. If power was properly used... There would be no need to equalize or check it. And so Jesus now is going to tell us about the proper use of power. How if power is properly used, it brings a blessing to the world. So how did Jesus himself use power and how does he instruct us to use power? That's what we're looking at now for these three characteristics of how power gets used in Jesus's economy. So the first thing, Jesus's power fundamentally blesses the other rather than self. So verse 26, Jesus says this, whoever would be great must be a servant and whoever would be first must be a slave. So Jesus contrasts the world's view of power with his vision of power. And he says in his vision of power, those in positions of power should use their power as servants and as slaves. To be a servant or a slave is to use your power fundamentally for the sake of someone else. You are using your energy and your resources to benefit someone else. This is how Jesus lived his entire life. He was constantly using his power for the sake of others. There was no one with more power, not just in Jesus's day, but in our day, but there was no one with more power in Jesus's day than Jesus. And he constantly used his power for the betterment of those that were around him. Not because he had to, but because he chose to. And that's what made Jesus's use of power and his life so significant. It's one thing when a servant serves, it's another thing when a leader serves because a leader doesn't have to serve. But when a leader chooses to serve, he's doing something significant. One of my favorite moments in Jesus's life comes from John chapter 13. If you have your Bible with you or on your phone, you could just flip over there. I don't need to. I'll read it for you here. But Jesus, in the most literal way, takes up the form of a servant, not just metaphorically, but he literally takes up the form of the practice and the duty of a servant. Listen to what he does. This is the night before he is betrayed. Now, before the feast of the Passover, chapter 13, uh, John 13, one through five here. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father. So he knows he's right at the end. This is a couple days from where we are right here in this, in our part of the sermon. 
He loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, verse 4, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured out water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So here is Jesus. I just love this line in verse chapter 3. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus is absolutely assured and confident that he is in fact the king of all things. He is the Lord of the world. He is the one to whom God has given all authority over all that has been made. And what does Jesus do in that moment of his assurance of his authority? He takes the robe of a servant. He wraps it around himself and he picks up a towel and he adopts the role of a, of a servant or a slave even. And he washes the feet of his disciples. And then he says to his disciples, what I've done for you, you must do for others. Jesus knows that he's going to sweep them up into his kingdom authority. And he wants them to use their authority, not to lord it over everybody, but to be a servant, to, to take the posture of a servant and to care for others. <clears throat> With his whole life, Jesus showed that one's power, one's capacity was to be used in service of the other. But we so naturally reach for the levers of power or we're seeking the levers of power because we're trying to make our own lives better. That's fundamentally why we are concerned about capacity and power. We're trying to make our own lives better. But Jesus says, no, pull the levers of power in order to make someone else's life better, not to bless yourself, but to bless others. So think about the places in your life where you are in positions of power where you have the capacity to be a blessing to others. Maybe it's at school, in your classrooms. Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe it's in your family. Perhaps it's in your neighborhood or your apartment building. How do you use the power that you have in those situations? Do you use it fundamentally in service of self? to make sure that your house is in order, as it were, to kind of protect yourself, to build a little fort around yourself? Do you fundamentally use your capacities in those situations to self-protect, or do you fundamentally use those, your power in those situations to be a blessing to others? Maybe you say, I have no power. I can't bless others. Well, if you have any capacity at all, you have some power, right? How do you use the power that you have? You may not have a ton of power, you might not be the coolest kid in class. You might not have the nicest home in the neighborhood. You might not be the boss of your company. Whatever you are, though, you have some capacity of power. How do you use your power? Do you use it as a blessing? Perhaps your problem is not that you don't have any power in those situations, but perhaps your problem is that you're afraid to use your power in those situations. Because you're more concerned about self-protecting. Ask God to show you what it would look like to bless those around you with your power. 
Maybe it's just in one sphere. Maybe there's one sphere in particular that you know you're not using your power properly or you're not using your power at all. Ask God to show you what it would look like in that sphere then to use your power properly and as a blessing to others. So first lesson, Jesus uses his power to bless others and so should we. And then second, Jesus' power is used in a humbly present way. Jesus' power is humbly present. So staying on verse 26 and this theme of servanthood, insofar as Jesus is calling us to use our power as servants to bless others, he's calling us to a posture of humility. So I was thinking about this second point and I was trying to think of ways to talk about the importance of humility. And as I was thinking about examples of humility or humble uses of power, it occurred to me that every example of humble power that I was thinking of involved being personally present. And I think it's worth considering the connection between humility and personal presence. Because there's one thing to use your power like a rich patron, just sitting up high above the churn, casting down your favors on all the little people like you're throwing breadcrumbs into a goldfish pond. Right? That's one way to use power, right? And to use it in power in service of others. You just throw your power down to all the little people. But that's not Jesus' vision of power. That's not the kind of vision that he's laying out here. Jesus is the great patron of the universe. But he didn't save us by just doling out favors from on high. He didn't just stay up in heaven and throw down to us bits and pieces of salvation. He got off his throne and came down into the trenches with us. He came down into our world, our brokenness. He humbled himself and he made himself present to us to serve us. To use Jesus' power in that way is to bless others in the same way that Jesus has done. Not as detached patrons who remain uh, up above and removed, but as servants who are willing to come down and be present and low. So listen, if we're going to use Jesus's power in the way that Jesus used power, we're going to have to be willing to be personally present with those that we are serving. And I think that's what it means ultimately to be a servant, particularly in the ancient world. You couldn't be a servant without being present in your service. You've got to be present to be a servant. Humble servant power is face to face. It is eye to eye. It is at the same level. It doesn't stay at a personal remove. So when you think about your use of power for the sake of others, do you use your power in humble personal ways like that? Are you willing to get down into the trenches to serve others, to be personally present in humble ways? Is there any place in your life where God is calling you to serve others that perhaps you are resisting because you don't want to be so present? You don't want to get your hands dirty. You don't want to get down into the churn with everybody else. Right? You, you, you're willing to serve other people, but you want to stay up above and removed. You don't want to have to get down and get into the mix. Some of us being personally and humbly present is the hard part of using Christ-like power. We're willing to serve others, but we're not willing to be present. I'm thinking a positive example of this. Brent Rieger and uh, Kevin Lee, a couple of our uh, elders who uh, served the last number of years, um, 
went uh, last year over to Ethiopia and uh, served the children in Ethiopia uh, who did not have proper eye care. And so Brent and Kevin, not any expertise necessarily in how to use, uh, you know, to make glasses or use eye technology. They're not ophthalmologists. But they went over there and they were present with all these Ethiopian school children who did not have access to proper eye care. And they spent a week over there caring for these kids, literally looking these kids in the eyes. Right? They were down in the churn with all those kids in the mix of Ethiopia there. And that's the way I think that power needs to be used Right? We need to be willing to get down to the level of those that we are serving. Because you can't lift people up if you're standing on top of them. Right? To lift people up, you have to get down to their level, underneath them even, to serve them, to lift them up, to be a blessing. So Jesus uses his power to bless others. And so should we. That's the first point. Second, Jesus' power is humbly present. And so we need to be humbly present in our use of power as well. And then third, Jesus' power is sacrificial. In verse 28, Jesus reveals the full height of his power. The Son of Man came to be served, not to be served, he says, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The full height of Jesus' power is not seen in his healing the sick, it's not seen in his raising the dead even, not calming the storm, not feeding the 5,000. All great expressions of his power. But the fullest expression of his power is revealed when he gives his life as a ransom for many. And it's remarkable, really, when you think about it, that the height of Jesus' power was revealed on the cross. At the place of weakness and scorn and suffering and death. It was there on the cross that he called forth all of his power. And in his power, he endured a judgment that you and I did not have power to endure. He used his power to set us free from sin. And that meant drinking the cup of our judgment. He took upon himself the weight the full weight of all human brokenness and sin. And he heaved it onto his shoulders and he climbed up upon the cross and he killed it there. And in doing so, he lost his life. And that took great faith. It takes a bit of faith to use our power to seek the good of others. It takes a bit more faith to be humbly and personally present. But it takes true and great faith to use our powers for others when doing so inevitably involves necessary uh, loss, suffering, and loss of life. When Jesus went up to the cross, he didn't go up to the cross with any safety net except his heavenly father. He didn't have a fallback plan if God failed him. It was God or nothing when he went up to the cross. I think of 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. Peter talks about Jesus going to the cross. And listen to what Peter says about Jesus. He talks about how Jesus was called to suffer. We've been called to suffer too. He says, for this too you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ took upon himself all of our sin so that we could live to righteousness. And how did he do it? He did it by entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He didn't fight back. He didn't try to resist. He, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That was how he, he used his power in a sacrificial way on our behalf. Jesus was able to endure the cross. He was able to use his power on, on our behalf, even when that involved suffering, because he wholly entrusted himself to God. And here it's in this vision of the use of power that I think most challenges our natural human impulses. Because our natural human impulse is to self-protect, to insulate ourselves from suffering, to insulate ourselves from the things that would cause us pain. And these, this natural inclination stands in the way of us using our power for the sake of others. But we don't have to live a life of self-protection if we have entrusted ourselves to God's protection. Doesn't mean necessarily that God's always going to save us from suffering. It didn't mean that for Jesus. Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly, and he ended up on the cross. But he didn't stay on the cross. God raised him from the dead. And when we entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, it doesn't mean that we will ultimately be saved from suffering or always saved from suffering, but it does mean that we will ultimately be vindicated when we entrust ourselves to God. So as Jesus now think this morning, is he calling you to use your power on behalf of another, perhaps at a great personal cost? God will call us to these moments in our lives. Not every moment of our life are we called to make the ultimate sacrifice. That wasn't true for Jesus as well. Jesus lived for 30 plus years before he went to the cross, right? So not every moment are we called to go to the cross, but there will become decisive moments in our lives where God is calling us to go to the cross, as it were, for the sake of someone else, to endure suffering and loss, to endure hardship and pain so that someone else can be blessed. Maybe this morning, God is calling you to that situation for the sake of another this morning. Are you shying away from blessing another with your power because you're afraid of what it will cost you? If God is calling you to a cross for the sake of another, if he is calling you to use your power in a sacrificial way, be assured that he will not let your sacrifice fall to the ground. He will not abandon you to the cross. He didn't abandon Jesus to the cross and he will not abandon you to the cross to which he calls you. He is faithful and he will honor your sacrificial use of power. So let me encourage you to entrust yourself to God who judges justly. And then let us all, as he calls us, climb up onto the cross for the sake of others and believe that God will deliver us. This takes wisdom, it takes the Spirit's leading. Jesus didn't always in every moment give himself to suffering and persecution. Sometimes he walked away from it. But there were decisive moments when he stepped into places of pain and suffering and ultimately on the cross when his father asked him to because he knew that God was calling him to that place. So as we believe 
that God loves us and he calls us to use our powers to bless others, when he calls us into a place of using our power to bless others that requires us to go to the cross, let us listen to his voice and follow him, trusting that he is leading us with love. Well, the world's powers systems are broken, and the best that the world can do is to try to take power away from each other or equalize power, eliminate power disparities. But Jesus calls us to a deeper truth, a deeper resolution, not the elimination of power, but a return to its proper use, power in the service of others, power that is humbly present, power that is sacrificial. And as the church, as our church, uses power in the name and pattern of Jesus, we reveal that power ultimately exists for love. Maybe you're listening today and perhaps you're not yet a Christian. You've not received the powerful love of God, Jesus, when he went up to the cross bearing the sins of the world. You've not received the gift of that sacrifice. Salvation is a free gift. And it is received through faith alone. To receive salvation, here's the beautiful thing about salvation. To receive salvation is really just surrendering to God's loving power that is expressed to us through Jesus. It is just surrendering to God's love extended to us through Jesus. Not trusting in our own power, not holding on to our own power, but surrendering our power to God's greater power, the great patron of the universe who does not exercise his patronage over us in exploitative ways, but uses his patronage in the spirit of true eternal love to bless us. And when we surrender ourselves as clients, as it were, to God's benign, loving patronage. That is what it means to receive salvation. So maybe this morning you want to receive that salvation. You've not done it before. You're not a Christian. You say, I want to be part of Christ's kingdom. You do it as simply, privately of your own home there, the privately, privateness of your own heart. You could pray something like this, Lord God, I need your redeeming power in my life. I can't save myself. Forgive my sins. Thank you for sending your son to bear my sins upon the cross. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and make me new. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. That's what it means to enter into salvation. If you can pray that prayer in sincerity and in earnestness and you can mean it, then God extends to you the gift of salvation. And then if you've prayed that prayer, then formally celebrate your entry into the kingdom of God through baptism. We may have a few spots left for baptism this coming Sunday here in Easter. We'd love to have you. And if not Easter, then soon after. But we would welcome you into God's kingdom to celebrate with you your reception of God's gracious love poured out upon you in Christ. Well, God loves us. He has not uh, neutered his power in our lives, but he has manifested it, but he has turned it to our uh, benefit. And, we and he calls us in Christ to do the same for others. So let us love others with the fullness of the power that God has given to us to bless others and to exalt them and bring them into a place of joy and peace in God. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you that you 
care for us in the ways that you do and that you have displayed your power in our lives, that you um, have given us in Christ a fresh way, a new way of thinking about power. God, I pray that you would help us most fundamentally to not use power as a means of preserving our own little kingdoms that will one day fall anyway, but that you will uh, grant us, Lord, the capacity to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly and to use our power in ways that are a blessing to those around us. God, I pray that you would give us the capacity to do that and uh, that increasingly uh, our um, ability to do that would be a witness uh, to this world and giving uh, this world the hope of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.